Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Man, grab a seat, everybody. Today, we're in week two of our series on culture and character. Last week, we started talking about where these two things intersect, and in order to do that, we have to define some terms, and we started by defining kind of what culture is. And so, culture, as we're going to define it throughout this series, is the shared attitudes, values, and practices of the people around you. So what that means, what we need to recognize is that you go in and out of different cultures all day long. You have a culture at home. You have a culture at work. You have a culture at church. This church culture is different than some other church cultures. I've gotten emails about it. Some happy, some not so happy, you know. There are different cultures that you step in and out of every single day. And and why we're talking about cultures and character and where those two collide is because it's really the story of a guy named Daniel. Because what happened with Daniel, if you were with us last week, he was a 15-year-old, give or take, Jewish kid. He was smart, and he was good-looking, you know? And, and what happened, if you follow with us um, from last week in 3 and 4, I'll just read a couple verses. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil king, an evil king that ran the world's most powerful empire called Babylon. And he saw these little people, the Jews, that had been struggling to stay alive for a couple generations now. And he decided one day in 605 BC, let's go take them over. And, and that was the beginning of a new life for Daniel. It says in verse 3 and 4 from chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar said, Choose some of the Israelites who were of royal and noble descent, young men in whom there was no physical defect, who were handsome and well-versed in all kinds of wisdom. And what happened to Daniel is literally one moment he woke up, one morning he woke up in Israel, like he had every day of his life before then, and the next he woke up in Babylon. And they were starkly different. He was in a new culture that valued different things. All of a sudden, the people that were around him didn't share his values, didn't share his practices, didn't share his traditions, and they actually told him that the opposite was better. And that's what chapter one was all about. It's the struggle for Daniel's character. And if you follow along with us, there was a story about some food, and he said, I'm going to eat the way God wants me to eat. And that wasn't a conversation over what the best diet plan is. Really, if we're going to start a conversation on what our character is as we follow Jesus, it doesn't begin with what we do. Our character begins with who we are. And so last week we talked about that our character is more than just what we do. It's who we are because character is an extension of identity. And so Daniel knew no matter what culture he stepped in and out of, he knew that he was a child of God. He knew that he was loved by God. And so his character, the what of his actions, was shaped by who he saw himself becoming or who he identified with. And so if you and me are going to live in our world and try to espouse or live into the ways of Jesus, it's not just a conversation about what we do. It has to begin with who we see ourselves as. And so if we want more of the what, then press into more of the who if you want to look more like Jesus, understand your identity is rooted in Jesus. And, and C.S. Lewis says it really well. I love how he phrases it. He said, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. <laughs> so the idea of character is a second thing. The idea of identity is a primary or a first thing. 
So the first challenge we had when we talk about our character in a culture that doesn't so much value God as much as it used to, the first thing we talked about is this a conversation about your identity. Action follows. And we quoted a couple stats last week. I can quote stats all day long. And the one that we use is one by Gallup. And it said in 2000, roughly 8% of America's population had no official religious affiliation or desire to know anything of God. Now, 20 years later, give or take, that's up to about 19%. I can quote you more stats from Gallup polls. Americans are increasingly unlikely to become formal members of churches or other religious congregations They did a study from 1999, and in 1999, the number of people in churches were about 70%. It was 50% in 2018. And we're not talking people that show up every week. These are Christers, everybody. You know what I'm talking about? Christmas and Easter people that we love and love well. And and here's the deal. Here's what that matters. is because I think if we're going to talk about our character in the middle of the culture that we're in, we have to know where we're dropped in, like Daniel. And I think if I look around, I see a culture that, that increasingly doesn't want to carry the character of God forward. And there are goods and bads in that. And, and you can quote stats all day long, but I can just simply go to the sacredness of the Sunday morning. When I was growing up, um, man, Sunday was like a thing. It was church day. I don't know if it was like this for you. And I am not that old, and I feel like I shouldn't be doing an old man get off my lawn speech, but here we go, okay? So I, um, I, I remember my parents used to say every single week, cause I didn't really love going to church. You know, it wasn't no way geared toward me. It was a Methodist church. It was fine. I would just count the ceiling tiles over and over and over again, you know. It didn't light my world on fire. And, uh, but we did it every week because that's what you're supposed to do. Then my parents believe in Jesus. And so my dad and my mom used to say, uh, growing up, from whenever, I don't care what you do on Saturday, on Sunday morning we go to church. My favorite week of the year was a week in June in downtown Dallas growing up. There was an old basketball tournament called Hoop It Up, and it was a three-on-three tournament. And if you were good enough to make it to Sunday, then we didn't have to go to church that week. That was it. I love basketball, right? I fought not to win. I fought to, to go to church on that Sunday morning. My point is simple. We've lost the sacredness of Sunday. I found out in high school that my parents cared very much about what I did on Saturday night, even if I went to church on Sunday. I, I can sit up here and say that I, I think we've lost the sacredness of Sunday morning. There are soccer tournaments on Sunday mornings and baseball tournaments. And when I was a kid, that would never even have been thought about. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that's good or bad one way or the other. I think times have changed. I think you can download Matt Chandler anywhere you go on Sunday or Saturday, right? That's a good thing. But I think what it shows is that as a culture, no longer do we value a time and space for God to have weight in our lives. I think it's moving away from that, not towards that. I think our culture primarily isn't as concerned with building people that, that resemble God's character anymore. And that's Daniel today. So where we're going to jump in in our story in chapter 2, it's three years later. He finished his training. And he's stuck in the middle of Babylon. And, and here's the deal. It's hard because it's been three years and nobody's coming for him, you know? I'm sure he trusted in God to deliver. I'm sure he was healthier when he ate the food that God said to eat the week before, last week when we looked at Daniel 1. But it's been three years and seemingly his side's not winning anymore. And there's not a whole lot of hope in sight. And so today's conversation is really a conversation on the power of the cultures that we find ourselves in. The one that we look around and we see might be winning or the one that we think that we believe in and the God that we follow. And that's Daniel's tension to it too. So before we dive into chapter two of Daniel, I'm going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to spend a couple minutes just praying. Um, two purposes here on, at, at Crossroads on Sunday. One is we want you to know God this morning. That means that if you are a super Christian and you read this story prepping for this moment seven times this week in your quiet time, daily, super early morning devotionals, awesome, Right? But if you have never heard the story before, we believe that God still speaks through it. 
Because even if you know what happens in Daniel 2 or not, the God that we serve and worship and follow, we can never know the end of. That's not scary. That points to his majesty and his might. I need my God to be bigger than me or he's not worthy of my worship. And so we're going to spend some time and pray that as we open this text, that God uses this text and the words that I'm going to speak, that he uses that to stir an affection for Jesus in your souls because the Holy Spirit is active in this moment. It's not a one-way conversation. This is something we engage in together as we're formed in the likeness of Jesus. And then two, I'm going to ask that you pray for me. We want to know and experience God this morning. That as I paint a picture of who God is in the Bible, that we might not just know about God, but feel the weight of his influence in our day to day. So let's pray. God, I'm so thankful to be here. (laughs) I'm every single Sunday that we have the grace to come to a place like this and just talk about you and be reminded of who you are in a culture that maybe doesn't tell that story as much as it used to, the one of Jesus. So we open the scripture, Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak to our soul, that you challenge us, that you edify us if it's needed, (laughs) that you encourage us. I ask if you're comfortable that you take just a couple seconds and to yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in your spirit this morning. And I ask that you pray for me that that God might use my words for his good, that we don't see me, but we see the message of Jesus being told this morning, that I might rightly paint the picture of the character of God that we see in the scriptures. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. We're in it together. Open your Bibles. Daniel chapter 2. Before we go, I need to deal with kind of the elephant in the room in this chapter. If you're familiar with it, you might know that this chapter, especially verses 28, 29 and following, is one of the paramount prophetic texts in the, all of the scriptures. It really lays out for Nebuchadnezzar the king, it lays out the next empires of the world and where this thing is going. And and what I want to do this morning, by the way, is not so much focus on the prophetic aspect of the scripture, but the narrative aspect. So when we open the Bible, there are different kinds of literature. Sometimes we see stories, narrative, that's most of the Old Testament. Sometimes we see law, it's the stuff that you stop reading the Bible in a year plan or skip over when you get to Leviticus. Sometimes we see epistles, which is just Paul writing letters to his friends in other cities that follow Jesus saying, this is my hope and prayer for you. And the way that we read the scripture has to be determined by the kind of literature it is. It's how we approach every written text, whether it's a letter from your three-year-old or your mother, right? And so we see two kinds of genres in our text today. We see a narrative at the beginning, and we see prophetic text to the end. And it's really all about um, the prophetic text at the end. This morning, though, I want to spend some time on the narrative. And just as a caveat, I I think prophetic texts are good. Um, I think they're valuable. I think sometimes in a Christian culture, if you go so internal, you forget that maybe the point of prophetic text isn't that we figure out exactly all the details, but it tells the story of a God who who we can have confidence in. And so what we're not going to do this morning is argue over whether Medo-Persia was the breastplate in this figure that we're going to talk about or whether it was just Greece. We're not going to talk about the ten toes because I hate feet and what specifically those kingdoms were. And it's not that I don't think prophecy is good. I don't want to get lost in the weeds. There's a a story I love, and I've heard it said by several pastors, so somebody made it up somewhere. I don't even know if it's true. If it is, I want to meet this guy. He took over a church, 
and um, he got up to teach his first sermon. And he teaches on, you know, maybe the Sermon on the Mount. It really doesn't matter. It was words of Jesus. And he teaches on how to love one another. And they go away, and we say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> and then the next week he comes back, and he says, open your Bible. We're going to talk about how to love one another. He teaches the same sermon, right? They said, wow, that's a really interesting approach. Uh, I appreciate you. I'm going to give you some grace and space in this moment. That's really good. Comes back the next week. He says, open your Bibles. We're going to talk about how to love one another. Gives the exact same sermon again. At this point, grace was gone, okay? And the people were starting to revolt saying, what are you doing? He said, I don't feel like we've learned this yet because we're not doing it yet, right? And I'm going to preach the same sermon until we do. I love that story. And what I mean by that is I don't want to get bogged down in the details of Bible and Christian jeopardy and talk about prophecy. It's really good. But I want to talk about how we see Daniel's life impacted by the story of God in the first bit of this text. So it starts like this. In chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had many dreams. His mind was disturbed, and he suffered from insomnia. A couple things we have to know here. One is this idea of visions is going to be really all through Daniel, but especially in this chapter and in one coming up when we get to chapter 4. And and, and visions in the Old Testament are maybe a little different than we see visions now. And without getting too deep in the water of a theology on visions, I I do want to say this. I think that God is a good, gracious God. And I think that God speaks to and through people in and, and, and where they're at. So what I mean by that is we live in a pretty rational society. We ascribe ourselves that the best good is knowledge and intellect. And we think that if we just know more, we're becoming better people. I don't think that's worked out as well, but that's a that's a perfectly fine component of growing as people. In, in this culture, and in most of the ancient cultures, mysticism was much bigger. In, in a lot of the Asian cultures today, in Middle Eastern culture, mysticism is a much bigger deal. And so what we see are more visions. And, and what that means is I think God speaks to people in ways that they can hear it because he's gracious. And if they put weight on visions, I think God used visions to speak to his people. And I know that God does that because I'm a father and I speak more baby language to my kid than real talk to my wife most days, you know? Because I want to speak in ways that she hopefully understands. Most of them are just noises now. I have no idea, but I smile a lot, you know? So when we see visions in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, I think what it's doing is God is using how they associated the divine talking in that culture to speak to him because he had something to tell him. So Nebuchadnezzar, as the most powerful man in the world. It says in, it says in a couple of the prophets that he was so powerful that literally not only all the people on the earth listened to him, but he controlled all the livestock on the earth that listened to him as well. When we talk about Nebuchadnezzar, he controlled unabashedly. One man controlled most of the known world when it comes to our story about Daniel and his friends and his people. And it says in verse 1 and 2 that he had many dreams and his mind was disturbed and he suffered from insomnia. That word disturbed there doesn't just mean like, man, I, I really have a hard time getting to bed. It takes me an hour or two longer. Have you guys ever read The Telltale Heart by, by Poe? You know what I'm talking about? It's a, it's a really dark story that for some reason they make you read in the eighth grade. And it literally is about the weight building of like this heart beneath the floorboard that just beats. And with every beat, it doesn't just beat, it grows on you and it consumes you to where you can do or think about nothing else until you figure this out. This is what the word means in Hebrew. It's this overwhelmingly, this building kind of anxiety where he couldn't just not go to bed without cookies and a warm glass of milk at night. He was not sleeping, period. It was overwhelming the most powerful man in the known world. And so we can't sleep. We find our tension, and it says in verse 2, the king issued an order to summon the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, 
and wise men in order to explain his dreams to him. So they came and they awaited the king's instructions. So he can't sleep and he turns to the only people he knows that can maybe give an answer because they spoke in visions. And so he assembles his team of essentially people that spoke with God or their deities. And he says, guys, I need you all to come. I need you to come right now because I don't know what's going on and I need to know. And it's funny actually, because this whole story is really about the influence of power, culture, character, God's power, other gods, if you want to call them that power. And, and, and when it says there's four different people that Nebuchadnezzar calls forward, and the interesting thing about it in the text is Daniel writes this probably 40 or 50 years later. The interesting thing is that they all derive their authority or power from different sources in ancient Babylon. So the magicians, for example, they saw into the future. The conjurers communicated with the dead. The sorcerers practiced sorcery and cast spells. And the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the wise men in the Babylonian culture, this was the highest level of mysticism you could go. They looked at the stars and the moons in Orion's belt, and they said, we can tell what's going to happen. We can make sense of the world through the authority of the celestial beings. All these four different people, different groups of people, rooted their knowledge of what was going to happen in a different primary source. Here's a spoiler alert. This is about God's ability to be more powerful than all other stuff in Daniel chapter 2. And so Nebuchadnezzar gathers all of these people together, and he says, keep reading in verse 3, the king told them, I've had a dream, and I'm anxious to understand the dream. The wise men, this is the top of the chart, they take the lead, the Chaldeans say, um, uh, o king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we'll disclose the interpretation. The king replied to the wise men, my decision is firm. If you do not inform me of both the dream and its interpretation, you will be dismembered and your homes reduced to rubble. Okay, when he said dismembered and homes to rubble, he's not kicking their family out first, by the way. <laughs> this was a pretty big threat. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's kind of flipping the script on how this normally works. So most times in the ancient world, if you had a dream, you'd conjure up your people and you'd say, this is the dream. Let me tell it to you. Tell me what it means. And they'd give you an interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty smart dude um, because he knows that there's things that could go wrong there. First and foremost, he was very powerful. He threatened to destroy their entire families if they didn't tell him the dream that he wanted. Nobody would ask questions if he killed people. And so here's what that doesn't do. That doesn't give freedom to the sorcerers to tell them the true dream if it's not positive, you know? There's an article I read this week. There's a website called 538. It's a, these are like super nerds, and I love them. They, they analyze everything, usually in sports. And this one guy said I was at a Chinese restaurant, and I opened my fortune cookie. And I thought to myself, how many fortune cookies are like this? So I would have dropped it at that point. I might have done a Google search. Uh, this guy went on Amazon and ordered 1,100 fortune cookies and had them sent to his house. And then he opened them all up individually. And then he charted and plotted like the, the um, kind of fortunes you get from these cookies. This guy is awesome, right? I don't know if I'd call him a friend, but I like his work, you know? Because I'd be like, let's go hang. And he's like, dude, I got fortune cookies to uncover. <laughs> okay, you know? So he uncovered these, and it's a really interesting article. It talks about like 52%, I think 52.9% of all the fortune cookies he opened talked specifically about you, and that's just a lesson out of, you know, how to win friends and influence people. Talk about the person you want to grow your relationship with, and they'll like you more, because they get to talk about them. My point here is I think 20% of them talked about your future success. I think a lot of it talked about like your love success. The point is, you don't go to Chinese restaurants, you don't go back to Chinese restaurants that a fortune cookie is like, eat another piece of orange chicken, it's gonna give you cancer. You know, that's 
not something we do. They're good fortunes because we want to leave in a good mood, so that will keep coming back. When the sorcerers said, hey, interpret my dream, I don't care if they thought that it meant the end for Nebuchadnezzar, they weren't going to say it, because if they did, it might mean their end. So the first thing Nebuchadnezzar does is say, I, I know how this works. I'm going to tell you my dream. You're going to tell me nice things, because I'm scary. And they said, yeah, kind of. And he said, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have you tell me the dream. And that did a couple things. He's a new king. He's been there two years, probably three calendar years at this point. And one, he probably inherited these people from the last one. He's checking their source. He's saying, you say that you speak for the divine, but I need you to prove it. And then two, there's Babylon existed for about, this version of Babylon existed for about 80 years um, and ruled everything. And I think the next two emperors after him were killed because of an assassination attempt from inside the royal court or the magicians because power corrupts people and they wanted it. And he didn't know if that's what they were trying to do. And he needed to be sure. So he said, I'm going to have you tell me the story. And it didn't go too well with his guys. If you look at me at verse 6, they got pretty upset about it. And they said, but if you can disclose the dream and its interpretation, this is him, Nebuchadnezzar, you receive gifts from me, a reward, and a considerable honor. So disclose for me the dream and its interpretation. They said, again, let the king inform us of the dream and we'll disclose the interpretation. The king replied, I know for sure you're attempting to gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you don't inform me of the dream, there's only one thing that's going to happen to you for you have agreed among yourselves to report to me something false and deceitful such times as these things might change. So tell me the dream and I'll have confidence that you can disclose its interpretation. Verse 10, then the wise man replied to the king, there is no man on earth who is able to disclose the king's secret. For no king, regardless of his position and power, has ever requested such a thing from any magician, astrologer, or wise man. Verse 11, this is kind of the climactic buildup for uh, the magicians. What the king is asking is too difficult. And no one exists who can disclose it to the king except for the gods, but they don't live among mortals. So... You have this story where the king has a dream and he's really powerful and he's shaken to the core because he doesn't know what it means and he gets the closest people he had that are the closest people he knows to the deities and he says, tell it to me. And they don't know. And he says, I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me. And they said, I, I, I still don't know. Nobody can do what you're asking. And what we see, what Daniel's trying to do when he writes this is juxtapose all the other authorities, kingdoms and powers versus the authority, kingdom and power of God. We see it several times in the Old Testament. For example, Last night, I was uh, at dinner with some friends, and they go to a church plant in, in Dallas, and uh, the husband is, is serving this morning in their kids' ministry, and he said, I'm teaching three to five-year-olds tomorrow. I said, all, all of them? All the three? All the way to five? And he said, yeah. I said, oh my goodness, what classroom are you in? And he said, I'm actually in a hall. I was like, oh my goodness, I want my children's volunteers to go to you to see how cush we have it at the CBC. Sign up, everybody, you know? And um, he said, yeah, it's difficult at times. I said, trying to get like a respite. What are you teaching? <laughs> he said, I'm teaching the, uh, the 10 plagues. <laughs> I said, oh my God, to a five-year-old? I said, how do you teach the 10 plagues to five-year-old? You bring some locusts and frogs? I mean, it's going to freak them out. They're going to write you up and you're not going to be allowed to serve anymore. Bring some locusts and frogs. Um, I talked through him with him and, and we started talking just about the point of why that's in the Bible. I said, how do you teach to a five-year-old the 10 plagues? And he said, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I actually understood what that was trying to do. And he said, I wish somebody would have taught me in Sunday school, and if you don't know, the 10 plagues are when the people are leaving Egypt. 
and God brings 10 plagues, not to the Egyptian, uh, not to the Jewish people, but just to the Egyptian part of where they lived. And so rivers turn into blood and there's locusts and there's um, frogs everywhere and darkness comes over the land and finally the firstborn is killed. It's where we get the Passover from. But the point of all that wasn't because God didn't like frogs or locusts or light. The point of all that was one by one, what God did when he enacted the 10 plagues is he knocked over an Egyptian god. One by one, what he was doing was showing his supremacy over what they thought was a supreme being in Egypt. One by one, he went to Pharaoh and said, I will show you that I'm more powerful than all the things that you ascribe deity to. And he did. That's the point of the 10 commandments. And I mean, that's the point of the 10 plagues. And so last night when we were talking about it, I just said, I would... I would ask them, hey, what is the most powerful thing that you know of? And if the little kids answer, my dad, you let that go. They'll learn that soon enough, but that's a beautiful, innocent thing, all right? And so we talked about the idea that that's kind of what we're talking about this morning is what Daniel's doing is he's juxtaposing what we think is powerful versus what actually is powerful. It's funny, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah's another prophetic book at times, and it talks about a prophecy in Isaiah 47, about Babylon. It talks about Babylon's destruction that hasn't happened yet. And I'm going to read a part of it. It says, Persist in, in turning and trusting your amulets and your many incantations, which you have faithfully received ever since you were a kid. Maybe you'll be successful and maybe you'll scare away danger. You are tired out from listening to so much advice. The ones who see omens in the sky, who gaze at the stars, who make monthly predictions, let them rescue you from the disaster that's about to overtake you. Look, they're like straw which the fire burns up, they cannot rescue themselves from the heat of the flames. He's speaking against other forms of authority in reference to God's authority. One commentator says, false religion offers the comfort of a fire, but it turns into the furnace of destruction. I always find texts like this interesting. So we, I serve a God who I believe is fully God in, in Jesus and the Godhead. I've never understood polytheism as much. So different gods, simply because if you need more than one, you're admitting that the one that you like isn't powerful enough to do all the things. That's why they make a big deal in Galatians that it can't be Jesus plus something. If it's Jesus plus something, then what you're really saying is Jesus isn't good enough, big enough, strong enough, enough to do those things. And so they conjure up all these different kinds of gods that they think aren't good enough to do it on their own, and God's going to sit down and say, yeah, they, they can't do it at all, because let me show you what real authority is. And then what was bad goes to worse in verse 12. It says, because of this, the king got furiously angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So a decree went out. <clears throat> the wise men were about to be executed. They also sought Daniel and his friends so that they could be executed too. Up to this point, Daniel hadn't done anything to deserve death. Daniel wasn't one of the ones that said, I can't do this. Daniel didn't do anything to deserve what happened. And he said, I can't trust any of you. I'm wiping you all out. And oh yeah, by the way, Find those Jews that we took over that went through my program three years ago. Kill them too. Okay, if you're Daniel, because he just pops on the scene in the story now. If you're Daniel and it's been three years and rescue hasn't come and I'm sure you're praying for it every day and trying to trust in a God that you can't see in a land that you don't want to be in and people that have been enslaved. If you're Daniel and now this king with no fault of your own said kill all of them, how do you not run? <laughs> you know, run, I do. I pack up my bags and I get out of there and I take my chances with whichever on the other side, if you can. But he didn't do that. 
It goes from bad to worse for Daniel. Not only is he captured and enslaved and in a different culture that didn't back up his character, he literally now is about to be executed. And this is how he responds. Look at verse 14. I love his response because it's definitely not what I would do. Daniel says, I spoke with the prudent counsel to Arach, who was in charge of the king's executioners, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. Literally, his response to you're going to die is I'm going to go to the person that's going to kill me, and I'm going to speak to him with prudency. And that, that word in the Hebrew there really doesn't just mean diligence. It's actually a derivative of the word for taste, like good sound taste, essentially. It means that he spoke to the person not just with good taste, but good judgment or command. It means that he was calm and cool and collected. He goes to the person that's about to kill him, and he says, whoa, let's talk about this, man. Let's take that time out right now, you know? And what I think is really interesting, what Daniel's trying to do, he's trying to show the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and him in the middle of what they perceive to be crisis. Yesterday, I'm going to tell you a story, and here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to judge my entire ability of fatherness in this story. We all have good days and bad days. We clear? Thank you. Yesterday, uh, my daughter... Uh, turns one today, and so we had some family over to celebrate that. And like any good parents, we had a smash cake, and we were excited, and she'd never had cake before. She'd never had sugar before, and so we were like, this is going to be so good. And again, it's just family. It's a little chaotic. If you think I'm loud, meet my family. And uh, we're all in our house together. There's probably 15, 17 of us, parents and siblings and their kids. And we come to the moment when we give the smash cake to my kid. So it's me, and my wife's at the table, and I had this little smash cake, and they said, should we put a candle on top? I said, of course we should. And they said, should we light it? And I said, why would we not light it? I had a little matchstick thing, and I'm flicking it on and off, you know? And they said, Charlie, you think it's a good idea to have fire around your kid? I said, it's not like I'm going to burn my kid. That's when I was a little too confident right there. That's what cockiness looks like, everybody. So... We proceeded to give the cake to my kid, and I kneel down, and, and we're singing happy birthday about to, and so I light the little one thing. Her, 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 her stool is right here. I am right here. I am I'm less than an arm's length away. We light the thing. We're singing. I learned a couple things yesterday. One, kids are quick, everybody. <laughs> all right? Like, they are, she's a little pudgy, but she is like a cheetah, all right? I'm right there thinking nothing bad could happen. We are singing happy birthday. The candle's right there. I thought if anything happens, I got this. And before I knew it, her little hand, because by the way, I'm a good father. She'd never seen fire before. We don't have Friday fire days at the right now household. So she saw this flame, and naturally she's attracted to it, probably because she's a sinner. And she reaches out and touches this flame. And we're like, no, there's a picture that my sister-in-law took, literally, where we're both trying to blow it out and you can see because they do the little apple thing where you can see the movement you can see her reach out and like grab the fire right put her hand right on top of the candle and we tried and we blew it out really quickly and that's when it all went south everybody so this was a moment that was supposed to be joyful and then she kind of looks up and with kids with kids you probably know this with kids there's a moment you have when something bad happens that you can turn that literally that frown upside down right where you can tell them hey this isn't that big deal you're fine this was not one of those so She touches the flame just a little bit, not that much, but she never experienced fire or probably that much heat, and she just loses it, right? She loses it. And I mean, we're talking like full-on, like snotty everywhere. My sister-in-law, after everybody left, we were talking about the the evening or the day, and she said, you know what? Those were, that was a real cry. Like, that wasn't fake. That was real. I said, thanks. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So... Anyway, at this point, there's 15 of us that know and care for my kid, that take care of my kid with us, and they're gathered around trying to tell her it's going to be okay. Um, So I pick her up, and I try and take her to the other room just to calm her down a little bit, and she's losing it at this point, and uh, it really wasn't helping that much, probably because she's like, why did you do this to me? 
And I didn't want to have the conversation at that point that it wasn't my fault, it was hers. Um, <laughs> that's probably a today conversation at lunch. <laughs> um, uh, and then two, uh, my wife came back and said, let me hold her and um, grab the kid. And no kidding, I handed the kid off to my wife and she stopped crying, right? And I, I want to have the second conversation, which is, you know you're my child too. Like, you, you get that. But again, I thought, maybe later. And, and it was funny for me. I just, I, I looked at this verse and I, I looked at what happened yesterday. And no matter how much pain she was in, or no matter how much chaos was going all around her, the fact that my wife was holding her was all the comfort she needed to be confident and collected and cool in the moment. So what we see is Daniel in our story, and he's about to be executed, and he doesn't know it's not going to go down that way. And he says, let's talk about this. And he's confident because he knows and trusts in God. Augustine said it like this. It says, the heart is restless until it finds rests in God. I think there's a juxtaposition between Nebuchadnezzar here and Daniel. So Daniel goes to the king. He essentially says, let me interpret your dream. Um, and in verse 19, it says, then... A night vision in the mystery. Uh, then in a night vision, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. So in the middle of those verses, Daniel got together with his three friends that were going to be killed. And they said, guys, let's pray. And I love that about Daniel. In the middle of the unknown, in the middle of the chaotic, that he said, you know what? I'm going to pray because I don't know what else to do. And we talked about it in January and in February. But when we pray, what we really mean there, it's the recognition that something outside of us can fix a problem we can't fix. It's a recognition that we need. It's a recognition that when I pray, whomever it's to, and mine is to the God of the Bible, when I pray, I'm recognizing that I need help. So prayer is. However you cut it and to whomever you pray. So Daniel says, we're going to stop down and recognize that I can't control this. I'm not good enough. I need help from somebody, something else. And he gathers with his friends, and God grants his prayer, and he shows them a vision. And what happens next is this really amazing prayer in Daniel. And I think because sometimes we focus too much on the prophecy, we've missed out on these four verses. It starts in verse 20. So Daniel has a vision, and God tells him what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And then he responds. So let's read verse 20 and 21 together. He says in those verses, let the name of the God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes times and seasons, deposing of some kings and establishing others. So the prayer does, what Daniel's doing throughout his prayer is he's praising God for who he is and let who everyone else is. The first thing he says is God changes times and seasons, deposing of kings and then putting others in power, the first thing he does is recognize the overwhelming power of God comparatively to everybody else. And so what he does next is he actually goes to the king and says, I can tell you your dream. And he does. And I'm not going to read the prophecy. You can go back and read that yourself. But one of my favorite parts of it is uh, in uh, one of the verses, I think it's verse uh, 37. So he says, let me interpret the dream. And the dream was essentially he saw, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue, gold head, and different metals that made up the parts of the body. And at the end of this dream, at the end of this big, ginormous statue, there was a big boulder that was formed. And the boulder came down and smashed it all to bits. So Nebuchadnezzar was terrified that he was going to die. That's why he couldn't sleep. So Daniel goes to this king and says, I know your dream. You dreamt of a statue. It had all these different parts to it. And, and in the end, it didn't last. And so you have a head, you have the chest and arms, you have the admin thighs, the lower legs, the feet and the toes. And not to get too much into it, but most commentators, most scholars agree um, that those represent different areas or different eras in history future, in, in, in what will come, the different empires that follow Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says in verse uh, 37, you, O king, are king of kings, the God of heaven has granted you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. 
Wherever human beings, wild animals, and birds of the sky live, he's given them into your power. He has given you authority over them. I love this phrase. You are the head of gold. Verse 39. Now after you, another kingdom will arise. It takes some confidence to look at a guy who threatened your life and say, let's talk about when you die, because that's going to happen. It takes a man who has confidence in something outside of that king. And then he unfolds his dream. And like I said, there's different parts of the body. And usually they would say that the chest and arms is Media Persia, which is Cyrus the Great. He came right after Babylon. And then the abdomen and thighs is Greece. And the lower legs made of iron is Rome. And then the feet and the toes, again, we're not going to talk about those, but the feet and the toes are the 10 kingdoms of the world that come into power after. And we don't know who those are. Uh, But what it really sets up for is the end. Look at me at verse 44. So he tells to the king... This is what's going to happen in the future. In the days of those kings, God of the heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed, a kingdom that will not be left to other people. It'll break the pieces and bring about the the demolishment of these kingdoms, but it will stand forever. So the purpose of this prophecy is to show the power of God that will never end, no matter who's in control. So it goes back to his prayer when he says he changes the times and season, deposing of some kings and establishing others. And I can't help but think about, do you know how much power it takes to control time? I guess the one thing that we can't get around. It's the one thing we can't control and I wish we could. I was sitting two days ago on my porch swing with my kid and, and I have an extra neighbor. His name's Bob. And Bob's awesome. Uh, Bob is a retired banker. He's, I don't know, older than me uh, by a while. And he... Um, he stops by everyone's phone and says hi. He does like a two-mile walk around the neighborhood and picks up trash every day. He's just a joyful man. And, he, you know, he has a grown-up daughter, and so living next to us, he keeps telling us all these, like, hey, don't miss this. You know, don't miss this. Don't miss this. And he said, I can't believe it's been a year. And I said, yeah, it's been a year. He said, it's crazy. He said, I know. He said, uh, it just only goes faster and faster. He said, how's it been for you? And I said, it's been the longest, slowest year of my life. <laughs> you know? I said, it's been the longest year because we don't do anything. And we're in bed, and sometimes a whole day feels like a week. Like, we made it to her bedtime, you know, 8 a.m. felt like three days ago, right? But at the same time, it's gone by so incredibly quickly. And he looked at me, and it was really, it was really fantastic. He said, yeah, I don't, I don't get a full year anymore. He said, I get about eight months every year. He said, you're young. You probably still get 11, you know? And I love that because what he was saying was that time passes so quickly, I can't control it. It just speeds up, and I feel like after a year goes by, it's only been what used to be eight months, It says that God controls the season and the times and he's going to establish a kingdom one day that's better and bigger than all the other ones. What Daniel's trying to do in the face of Nebuchadnezzar is he's trying to show him that one day God's power is the only authority that will be left standing in the middle of a culture that told him he was wrong. And so why I love this chapter and what Daniel does here, essentially what it shows us as we read the story, it tells us that we can be confident in our character that follows God because we see the big picture of God's power. That's what prophecy does. It allows us to be confident in following after Jesus because we know that this time in this place isn't the end of the story. We know that this time in this place isn't all that God had in mind. I, I see this most clearly in how I watch Cowboys games. Um, I am a passionate Cowboys watcher. We have a tailgate here in a couple weeks, and I'm going to do my best to be on my best behavior, but I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little scared, okay? Uh, I just feel all the feels when I watch Cowboys games, and you can ask some of my friends and family that have seen it. Sometimes it's not that pretty, all right? I'm working on it, growing in maturity. And so the way I watch it most, most times is I'll go home, but I don't, have, um, I don't have cable, and we just have bunny ears, and so sometimes they play at noon, and I, I work most Sundays. And so I can, I can make a decision. I can cut my sermon short, or I can miss some of the Cowboy game. 
I'm not cutting my sermon short, everybody, right? I know, I know. Everybody's going to come to the 915 during cowboy season. Um, it happens anyway. Um, I usually call my dad, and he lives in the area, and I say, hey, can you tape the game for me? Um, and he said, yeah, sure. And I ask him every time, please, 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 please don't watch the game. Like, don't wait till I get there. Please don't watch the game before. And I'll get there an hour into the game. He's like, yeah, no problem, won't do it. Every time so far, this man has watched the game. Every time. Here's why I don't like it. It's because something bad happens because it's the Cowboys, and I get all worked up about it, and I look over at my dad, and he just looks at me and says, just wait. And I'm like, no, man. <laughs> like, that's not okay. <laughs> and it's because he knows the outcome of the game. You have confidence in the chaotic moments of it, right? That's what Daniel's doing. So we live in a culture that necessarily doesn't espouse the character of God anymore. And we have two options with that. You can freak out, or you can trust that God's bigger than, than the picture that we see. We talked about the declining church rates in America, the declining rates towards Christianity in America. And, and while that's true, if you back out and just look at the global perspective, if you look at the numbers and polling and data on what God is doing around the world, it's a markedly different picture than what's happening in America. The data reflects an ongoing trend among the overall population. Listen to this. In 1910, over 66% of the world's Christians lived in Europe, according to Pew Research Center. In 2010, the percentage had shrunk to little under 26%. The religious landscape is particularly changing for the world's Christians. A century ago, um, most of the Christians lived in North America, Europe, compared to much less today. In 1980, more Christians were found in the global south than in the north for the first time in a thousand years. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone accounts for a billion people. The growth rate of Christianity actually is greater than the current population growth rate in the world. And we see most of the growth in Africa, in Asia, it's growing like crazy, and in the global south. So the question simply is just because we don't see it here, just because Daniel didn't see it there, doesn't mean God's not working because he knows the end score to the game. And so we have confidence in the Christian character that we follow because we understand the bigness and the perspective of God's power. But that's not the end of this. Uh, what I love about Daniel and his prayer, if you go back to the prayer, if you look at verse 21, the end of 21, I love where he goes after this. So he prays. He changes times and season, deposing of some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise and he imparts knowledge to those with understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in darkness and light resides within him. Why I love this part of the story is because it talks about the fact that God is motivated by or gives out wisdom. And what, what this moves from is a God that's impersonal and in control to a God that's personal and cares. He spent all summer talking about wisdom. And we define wisdom as knowing what to do and when to do it because you know who's in control of it. Wisdom is skillful living. And we actually used a baseball analogy to talk about it. We said, it does you no good if you can lift all the weights in the world and hit a baseball 3,000 feet if you don't swing at the right time in the right place. It does you no good so omnipotence, without, or omnipotence without, without knowledge of when and where doesn't lead to skill for living. What it says in our text, what Daniel says here, is that God not only is the God that's in control, but he gives out the wisdom to his people daily. Because if you think about it, <laughs> Daniel didn't have to be used by God. Daniel didn't have to go to God. Daniel didn't have to depend on God, but he did. He was in the top 10% of his class, if you want to put it that way, in chapter 1. And when this travesty befalled him, what he did was he turned to God first and foremost. He didn't try and figure out on his own. He didn't try to live into his own strength. It says that he went with his friends and prayed. And what we see in our text, what we see in kind of Daniel's prayer is the nuance of the power of God. 
is that it's not just the bigness of the one day, it's literally the sustainingness of God every day in our life. It's an age-old struggle in the Bible. It's an age-old struggle with us, is that we think that God is all-powerful, but we forget that God doesn't just go before us, he walks with us. And Daniel says, I'm thankful for a God who gives out wisdom when we need it because he cares. I think it's a beautiful shift in how sometimes I think about power, how they thought about power in that culture was that the same God that is in control of all these things that will build, establish a kingdom that is juxtaposing his power against all the other people's power, that same God meets us daily. That same God sustains us. It's a New Testament principle. In Galatians, you see Paul talking to his people in one of those epistles. And one of my favorite, favorite verses, he says, because I'm a type A personality, he says, are you so foolish? After, being, after beginning by means of the spirit, meaning God saved you, you didn't do it yourself, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? He says, why are you trying to do it all yourself and leave God out? Why do you believe that God can save you but that God doesn't sustain you every day? He says in Romans 8, when Paul is talking about his struggle with living into the ways of Jesus, he's talking about sanctification here. That means that we try and look more like Jesus every day. He's trying to live out the character of God. He says in Romans 8, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. The purpose of the power of God isn't simply to win one day, it's sustain us every day as we live out his character. It's huge. It's huge. Because if we tell the story of an all-powerful God who gave us a bunch of rules to follow, and we try to live out those rules on our own, that's all people see. If we tell the story of a God who gave us some things to follow because he loves us and walks with us, we tell the story of redemption and reconciliation, and that's the one that we see in the scripture, of a daily dependence on a God who we need, not just one day, but now. That's what Daniel's saying. I'm thankful that I get to serve this God in the middle of a culture that doesn't know what this God is, and look where it's gotten him. At the end, he closes his prayer um, and he basically thanks God for doing what he does. He says, oh God, in verse 23 of my fathers, I acknowledge and glorify you. You have bestowed wisdom and power on me. You've enabled me to understand what we requested from you and understand the king's dilemma. I think as he wraps up, when we realize that the power of God isn't just for us being saved, but the power of God is for us every single day, it leaves us in only one place, and that's just joy. It leaves us in a place that allows us to see that God is good and God is near. And so we celebrate when God is victorious, and we celebrate when God delivers, but we also remember that that's the character of the God that we follow, you know? One commentator said, and I liked it, he said, the test of our spirituality does not live only in the fervency of our prayers in times of crisis, but in the wholeheartedness of our worship when God acts in grace. Relief unaccompanied by worship is never an adequate response to the mercies of God. It's so like I said at the beginning, there is different genres in scriptures. Prophecy, and we dealt with mostly narrative today. And what, what we do with the Old Testament narrative, because this is not our story. I'm not in Babylon in 500 and something B.C., what we do is we read these stories and we're reminded of the story that it ultimately pointed towards, which was Jesus. 
And so we're going to take communion, and, and, and why we take communion isn't just to check a box that we do it once a month. It isn't just to check a box because God told us to. Why we do communion, literally what the table represents is God's salvation and sustaining power all in the same moment. Jesus got in a room with his disciples, and he said, I'm going to save you, and you're going to do this. Every time you gather, you're going to eat, and you're going to drink, and you're going to remember because it's not just about salvation. It's about sustaining, and the same power that brought me forward from the dead, which even Nebuchadnezzar couldn't beat, will be with you when you live out my ways and my character, because sometimes it's going to seem daunting. And so they take joy, and they celebrate in the simple, the simple and beautiful idea that God is all-powerful, and that we walk in that every day as followers of Jesus. And so when we take communion, um, I'll pray us out, and we can go and take it as you feel led. When we take communion, it's a remembrance of that thing that's good, and hopefully it inspires in us what it inspired in Daniel, a remembrance that we need, and overwhelming joy that it gives. Let me pray for us. God, I'm, in, <laughs> I'm blown away by your grace and your mercy towards us. <laughs> Could have just been enough that you saved one day and kind of let this thing run out on its own, but you, you chose to involve yourself in our everyday. I pray that we learn to live into Christ's character, that we learn to live into the ways of the scriptures of, of Daniel, that reflect your goodness. I, I pray that as we do that, we can learn what it means to actually be sustained by you. It's a hard concept. I pray that if we feel powerless today, that we know that, that your power goes with us as the Holy Spirit resides in us. And may that give us hope and confidence. And sometimes we need it in the midst of a culture that necessarily doesn't value your character as much as it used to. So I pray today that we lean into Jesus. We understand that he saved us and he is saving us every single day as we lean into his power. I pray these things in his name. Amen.